the interstate in and of itself is not some magical solution for a stagnant uh, economic situation in rural areas. Interstate compacts, uh, through the data that we crunched, are becoming more partisan over time. But we can expect Congress to perhaps give the, the military more autonomy to reform itself and restructure as it transitions to great power competition with China. Hey everyone, this is Major Haziano, and welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. May is always a special time of the year at West Point, as the senior class, or firsties, get ready to march on the plane one last time with the Corps cadets before graduating and commissioning as second lieutenants in the U.S. Army. For this episode, we bring you three standout cadets from the class of 2021 who recently completed theses assignments in American politics. Major A.J. Glubzinski spoke with former cadets Chris Weaver, Pat Schlimm, and Ryan Johnson about the research they conducted, their findings, and what recommendations they have for other cadets who are thinking about completing a thesis project. The topics range from measuring the economic impacts of expanding the interstate highway system, analyzing the emergence of interstate compacts to combat COVID-19, and how Congress exercises its oversight powers over the military. This episode was originally recorded on May 6, 2021, just a couple of weeks before these former cadets officially graduated from the U.S. Military Academy. I hope you find their research and findings as interesting as I did. So, without further ado, here's Major A.J. Glubzinski with this week's episode. Good afternoon. Uh, this is the Social Research Lab podcast. It's a beautiful uh, Thursday afternoon here, and it's the almost the end of semester, so some congratulations are in order for uh, some great firsties in the American politics program that I have with me here. But in particular, what we wanted to highlight today, um, we're one week before graduation and one week after Projects Day, and we had some great um, American politics thesis projects this year that represented some really diverse research on American political institutions and policy that I wanted to highlight today. So I have three uh, American politics firsties here and wanted to ask them to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about uh, the work they did, the contributions they made, and, and what they learned from the process. So, uh, uh, gentlemen, if you could just introduce your, yourselves, the title of the project that you worked on for your thesis this year, and what motivated you to start your project? So I'm uh, Christopher Weaver, and my paper is titled Reversing the Radiator Springs Effect. It looks at the developmental impacts of isolating or of integrating isolated rural communities into the interstate highway network. Uh, I was passionate about rural economic development because my family is from a very small town in Alabama, which is looking to uh, jumpstart its economic development. And Dr. Limbacher and I, after a couple of years of working on an idea, settled on uh, infrastructure and interstate expansion. So that's why we, uh, we finally decided on trying to do this paper. Great, Chris. Thank you. And uh, Cadet Patchlim? I'm Patchlim. I wrote my paper titled The Partisan Contagion, Interstate Compacts in Response to COVID-19. I originally became interested in uh, really just state-wide um, COVID responses during the pandemic um, when I was home last semester, and then I eventually saw that a lot of states were forming coalitions, compacts to kind of collectively address it, and then I really thought that that was an interesting gauge of partisanship and polarization to kind of see how the political climate might have evolved over time. And as I looked more into it, my home state of Pennsylvania was one of the states that was in a compact, and my interest just took off from there, and that uh, eventually became my project. Thanks, Pat. And uh, Cadet Ryan Johnson. Hi, my name is Ryan Johnson, and my paper is titled Watchdogs or War Dogs, the Changing Patterns of Congressional Oversight and Military Affairs. Uh, motivation for this project really began about a year ago when I was taking simultaneously uh, legislative politics and the soldier in the state. And in both courses, uh, I was receiving, in a sense, contradictory messages. Uh, one was 
that the military and the executive are the two primary actors in civil military relations. While in my Congress class, uh, the argument was Congress is active, it plays an engaged role in its decision making. And I, I noticed the discontinuity between the military and Congress. Looking at the triad between the executive, Congress, and the military, uh, the gap between Congress and the military wasn't heavily studied. And so I was really interested in how Congress engages with the military and oversees its operations. So uh, moving into this past year, taking a deeper dive and understanding how Congress can actually affect defense policy. It's been great over this past year. As you can hear, we have a project on American infrastructure and roads in particular, one on impacts of COVID and interstate compacts, and one on congressional oversight of the military. Truly, the diversity of, of potential topics to study within the American politics discipline. And what's even more exciting and, and why we're excited to, to share about the findings today is the the empirical methodology that each of these cadets employ. They all employ quasi-experimental designs, um, also employ some mixed methods designs that combine quantitative and qualitative research. So I wanted to highlight first kind of the, their methodological approach and then allow the, the cadets to share a little bit about their findings. So we'll start with, with Chris's project here. To introduce Chris's project, he asked this question about what would happen if the interstate highway system was expanded after its initial uh, creation. So we have these subsequent routes that are created, specifically interstate spurs um, and short distance highways created after the initial wave of the interstate highway system. And the question was, would they have the anticipated economic effects that the interstate system was anticipated to do? So what Chris looked at was data um, on over 1,500 miles of interstate expansion since the creation of the interstate highway system. And he collected data on those short distance and spur interstates, uh, primarily focused on the, the southeastern United States. And he'll explain why that's an important part of the question. Uh, but to, using that data in a quasi-experimental interrupted time series design, he looked at key developmental uh, dependent variables, including unemployment, income, and gross domestic product of the county. Um, so, Chris, what did you find? So, sir, it was actually most of the existing literature on uh, on interstates and transportation policy dealt with a lot of these original cross-country routes. And like you said, I focused mine on these short distance and spur interstates because the majority of uh, newly approved roads are made to either fill an existing gap in the interstate network or to connect an area that's previously unconnected or uh, not connected into the larger overall uh, interstate highway system. Uh, so it was very relevant to see if those uh, trends from the original routes uh, held true for the new ones. And I found that there were still some developmental impacts, especially through the initial drop in unemployment uh, upon completion of these individual segments of these short distance interstates. And my uh, findings also supported a lot of the existing literature talking about how the county had to have a substantial population, had to be within a certain radius of an, a metropolitan area and have some previous form of development to see the sustained development over time. But there are there were some racial uh, components that contradicted existing literature in the sense that instead of uh, a lot of the normal or a lot of the original routes, there was an immediate white flight and racial demographic shifting. What I found was actually more delayed shifting. And it's actually very relevant now talking about uh, interstate expansion with the infrastructure bill uh, being discussed at all levels of the government. So it can be used by policymakers trying to determine whether or not their county could benefit from expanding the interstate highway system into that area. So some really, uh, really important findings is uh, the Biden administration currently looks at expanding American infrastructure and road infrastructure in particular. And what Chris's project offered was really a refined perspective on what it means to expand interstates now that we have a world that already has interstates, a question that really was, was previously unanswered. And Chris's project offered some granularity on the specific types of effects in terms of the effects on unemployment, um, but also the timing of effects. Um, the previous literature had suggested that 
that um, there was demographic movement that was responsible for the economic development. And Chris, this project gave us a little bit more granularity that looks like the job creation came before the demographic movement. Um, but there are also some, one more question to follow up. There were also some implications for um, from your qualitative kind of connections on what might be necessary beyond just the initial road construction in order to sustain economic development. Exactly. Yes, sir. So what I kind of found was that the interstate in and of itself is not some magical solution for a stagnant uh, economic situation in rural areas. Uh, like I said, there has to there, the potential for uh, development to be sustained over time. The county has to meet those certain, uh, those certain criteria. However, uh, it also likely that they need to have certain business-friendly policies that are that make the area more attractive to developers to make the businesses move outside of where they currently are to these more rural areas because a business isn't going to move to the middle of nowhere or isn't going to move to a place that's not conducive for their overall bottom line. So that it seems like there's the road can be the impetus for development, not necessarily the end-all, be-all solution. So really important implications for policymakers at, at multiple levels, not only the federal level, but also the state and local level in terms of capitalizing on those uh, development projects. So with that, I want to turn over to, to Pat's project a little bit. So Pat, again, was the project related to interstate compacts and COVID. And uh, when we started first looking at this project, we were thinking about interstate compacts and COVID and trying to place those amongst other interstate compacts in American history. And of course, the Civil War came to mind and we we're trying to really understand how significant or insignificant these COVID interstate compacts were. So what, what Pat did to get at that question was use data all the way from the beginning, prior to even the Constitution, with all the interstate compacts in American history since 1785. Um, and then he considered the extent to which partisanship was related to um, the onset of interstate compacts. So there's a variety of mechanisms associated with why interstate compacts might be created. But Pat had some intuition about um, or interest in the question of how partisanship was related to it. And that was a question that hadn't been tested yet, quantitatively in particular. So um, Pat takes this effort to quantitatively test how partisanship's related to interstate compacts and then compares that to the interstate compacts that we saw with COVID. So um, first, from that first quantitative testing, what did we learn about interstate compacts from your study? First, I discovered that interstate compacts were primarily just used as a means of resolving border disputes between states. And of the 200 interstate compacts that I um, studied, 150 of them have been formed in the past 75 years. So one of the first conclusions I drew was that interstate compacts, which now span a variety of different topics from education to electoral law, gambling, in this case, public health, that they are becoming more, a lot more prevalent. And that's something that um, just to kind of watch for as American politics continue to evolve over time. Second of all, I found that interstate compacts, uh, through the data that we crunched, are becoming more partisan over time, particularly in the sixth party system in which we currently exist. We've seen a 13-point increase in uh, states using partisan uh, difference between their governor and the sitting president when, enter when enter entering compacts. And then during COVID-19, when we um, used the, the three compacts that formed over COVID-19 in comparison to the past precedent, this trend uh, did not necessarily exacerbate in that states showed a desire and means to kind of set aside that partisanship trend and relied more upon their state capacity and COVID conditions, the level of transmission in their states when determining if they entered compacts or not. That's something we use a case study for. An ex example was a state like Ohio entered an interstate compact, while Pennsylvania also did. And in comparison, states like Maryland and West Virginia did not. And 
states that had with governors that had more political coverage to enter interstate compacts did not, but they had significantly less COVID conditions in their states. So that was um, above all, this was a trend that we thought would be more concerning um, if it was in reverse and that it showed that states were more apt to use interstate compacts in a partisan fashion during times of crises. What did you learn that you would say about interstate compacts is important for American citizens to know today? I mean, over COVID, I, whether people knew it or not, there was over 170 million Americans whose work, entertainment uh, depended upon their home governor's approach to, to COVID-19. And the fact is that there was 21 states that used interstate compacts to collectively uh, address the crisis, reopen, uh, institute public health measures. And I think that the biggest thing just would be to really kind of watch um, and be aware of their relevance as it's growing and it could continue as it as past has shown it's going to continue to evolve and it might become a new phenomenon that's um, much more prevalent and talked about at least than it is today so an, an important policy tool certainly um, given the nature of, of crisis and state capacity challenges associated with covid um, certainly it appears relevant related to trends in partisanship um, but also broader I think a deeper historical question in American democracy in terms of the um, size of the republic. We go all the way back to Cato III and the challenges of, of figuring out policy that's suitable to all the states. Um, interstate compacts, I think, are relevant in that space. And, you know, as we said from the beginning, maybe the, the worst case scenario was the case of the Civil War. We see a mixture of both productive and, and challenging applications of interstate compacts. So a nice contribution there. Um, and then lastly, I want to shift over to Cadet Ryan Johnson's project. Now, Ryan's pr project was about congressional uh, oversight of the military in particular and, and refining our understanding of Congress's role within civil military relations. So Ryan's kind of core question was about whether military performance was related to levels of congressional oversight and looked at a few different dimensions in which we could think about military performance depending on the threat environment as well as the um, quality or lack of quality of performance. So uh, what Ryan did to do that was he used data um, spanning from 1980 to 2008 to include both high and low threat time periods and then high and low performance events. So he first considered the overall change in the number of congressional committee hearings in response to those events using um, a comparative interrupted time series design. And then he took some specific case studies that varied within either the level of performance or the um, threat, and then um, assessed the tone of those hearings, um, how the hearings uh, ascribed responsibility for the events that transpired, and whether the hearings led to subsequent reform. So Ryan really wanted to understand in both a quantitative and a qualitative way what Congress was doing in response to the military because most of the, the majority of the literature on congressional oversight was related to the executive previously. So there was a missing portion in terms of civil military relations. So, uh, Ryan, what did you find? One of the key findings I found was uh, Congress follows the traditional model of oversight as established. Uh, some scholars describe it as the fire alarm and police patrol forms of oversight. Uh, so after military performance events, uh, it acts as a fire alarm. And so members of Congress react uh, to that conducting more oversight after negative performance events. So when the military performs poorly, either through uh, war crimes or does not achieve the political objectives it outlined. And then furthermore, during high threat environments, uh, we see a larger increase in congressional response to those negative events. So when the stakes matter most, the country perceives itself as threatened, members of Congress react much more quantitatively in their hearings. Qualitatively, through the case studies, I found that members of Congress are much more likely to praise the military 
but when the military fails, they generally ascribe responsibility to civilian leaders, uh, the president and the secretary of defense. And another key finding I found was congressionally re led reform through legislation, changes to the structure and the organization of the military generally only occurs during high threat environments. So when national security is more important, members of Congress take an active lead in proposing policy changes to the military. How do the findings that you kind of gathered compare to other scholarly perspectives on Congress's role in civil military relations? It really goes against the conventional wisdom that Congress is deferential. It uh, lets the executive take the reins in defense policy. In reality, Congress is an active player, but given the nature of the institution itself, it's diffuse. There's 535 members in Congress. It's much more difficult. And so it relies on these triggering events through military performance to take an active role. As we see in the low threat periods in the absence of uh, military events, uh, Congress is much uh it cares a lot more about its domestic issues, parochial interests. But in these high-threat environments, when we expect Congress to be most deferential, in actuality, they remain active and they oversee the military. It's really fascinating. And one of the nice things about Ryan's typology is it not only includes those high and low-performance events where we see kind of variation in the degree of the fire alarm, we also see variation in terms of the threat environment. So a lot of the research recently in civil military relations has been in a relatively high threat environment since 2001. Um, but now we're in, we're in a low threat period. Um, so Ryan also has some uh, offers a perspective on what congressional oversight might look like in a low threat period. So um, how, do your how are your findings significant for um, what we might expect for congressional oversight during a, a low threat time period? We could generally expect Congress to trim on the edges through appropriations and posture hearings through those forms of oversight, they're going to be much less reactive to the operations of the military uh, as opposed to high threat environments. So we can expect a much more routine, regular oversight from Congress. However, the content of those hearings uh, is a little vague. Um, the military, we don't necessarily know what operations are coming. And so how the military performs during this upcoming threat period, uh, I can't necessarily speak to directly uh, but we can expect Congress to perhaps give the, the military more autonomy to reform itself and restructure as it transitions to great power competition with China. Yeah, that's a really important piece about the the role of re reform depending on the, the time period. So one of the key implications from Ryan's finding was that Congress drove reform more in, in the high threat time period as opposed to the low threat time period. Um, but there's a lot of um, key innovation that's going on um, within the Army right now um, within a low-threat time period, which is, is going to be interesting relative to the level of congressional engagement with that. So hopefully, I, I expect anyway for the listeners of the podcast that a lot of um, interesting aspects have been triggered from, from all of these projects, whether it's related to roads or interstate compacts or to, to civil military relations. Um, so hopefully they've got your, your thoughts flowing. I wanted to follow up with each of these cadet authors here and what other questions their research has kind of spawned, what might be next in their research agendas. So we'll start with Chris. Um, what are some of the interesting questions that you found as a result of your work and what, uh, what might be next on this research agenda? Yes, sir. So like I said, uh, the kind of overall finding that I got was the road itself is not necessarily the end-all be-all solution, but it could potentially be the impetus for uh, development in the area. And that's also looking at those counties that have those business-friendly policies that I alluded to earlier. So possibly looking specifically at those counties versus counties without those business-friendly policies to see if there's more sustained development over time uh, from as a result of that, the, the legislation in that area. Also, uh, my study only looked at 1,500 miles of interstate counties, 
So seeing how they changed over time, but potentially comparing from uh, the counties just outside of those interstate counties, so the non-interstate counties, seeing if uh, they saw a decrease while there were subsequent increases for the interstate counties, see if there's some kind of migration of either population or development into those areas. Uh, And then potentially even uh, looking at areas that may have at one point been approved for interstate expansion, but never actually followed through with it. See if that just simple notification of the potential of future development may have shifted any kind of actions taken by business leaders or political leaders in those areas. So lots of uh, lots of follow on studies that could potentially more fully answer the question. Yeah, really, uh, really good research that definitely primed and provides some important empirical insights that also sets up. Um, for some some greater um, causal inference, as well as maybe additional data and additional uh, dependent variables that might be considered as well. So, um, unfortunately, with infrastructure expansion, you may have um, great greater data sets or greater opportunities for some natural experiments along with that as well. So, shifting over to to Pat's project, same question: what are, what new questions did you come up with along the way in your process, and and what's next on your research agenda? I think the most interesting thing to kind of um, the next step upon my research would be just kind of examining the public polling on interstate compacts and seeing if maybe they're growing in relevance, maybe if more people can identify them, are people more supportive of their governors doing things collectively or not, just um, just kind of seeing the public's reaction to them. And then second of all, just examining the effects of interstate compacts in general. Like in the COVID example, if states that entered interstate compacts showed significantly better responses than whatever metric you want to use, um, education-wise, maybe scores... Test scores showed uh, a bump in states that entered them or did not enter them. But I think that that would be definitely be the next step to go in terms of um, just the topic in general. So some good opportunities that now that Pat's identified this uh, potential increasing prominence associated with interstate compacts to really understand in greater detail what their effects are, um, as well as maybe the, the differing motivations, that important uh, finding that, that Pat had that the COVID compacts were both kind of a consequence of partisanship and state capacity. Um, so refining those causal mechanisms as well as, um, I think, a, a, a great primer for, for some subsequent research. And then similarly for Ryan, what, what questions did you encounter in your project and, and what's next? From a method standpoint, one thing I'm really interested in uh, pursuing is understanding how the uh, threat level uh, affects congressional oversight because they are the people's branch. And so diving deeper into how the American people and members of Congress perceive the threat level. Uh, at its current state, my research is, it classifies it on a binary uh, basis. And so it's very uh, vague in those time periods, whether the country is in a high or low threat period. Additionally, uh, the data, I specifically narrowed it to oversight after events, not routine hearings. So I'd like to include appropriations and authorization hearings to understand how the content of those hearings is affected by military operations. And then finally, uh, broader, I'd like to see the, the military innovation question. Uh, Barry Posen's traditional military innovation, he argues, comes through a military maverick and Congress. But recent scholars uh, argue against that, saying it's internal to the military. So offering a piece through my research of how Congress reacts and the innovation that it creates, I'd be really interested in researching more. Yeah, that last question is certainly an important one with everything the um, Army and, and Department of Defense is doing relative to innovation and preparation for multi-domain operations and um, great, great power competition. So 
I think creating creating great questions is a mark of what the Department of Social Sciences is trying to achieve, and specifically within the um, Department of Social Sciences Research Lab, this opportunity with cadets to conduct empirical research that's really policy relevant has been uh, very rewarding for them over the past year, um, and been re- rewarding for me as a, an advisor as well. So, with that kind of idea of, of the things that we've learned over the past year, I want to turn and give these cadets an opportunity to just share. Um, with others conducting research or others about to begin the research in their um, senior thesis projects, starting with with Chris, what would you uh, what would you say you learned most from the research pro- process, and what would you tell others who are about to start it in the next year? So, just in general, I, I just want to reiterate how much I've enjoyed the thesis process. Uh, the AP STEM of uh, social sciences really allows you to make of it what you want, and the thesis is kind of the icing on the cake in the sense that it's really something that you can take something that you're passionate in and go as far as you want it to go. I would warn uh, future cadets that it is very time. uh, It's a huge time commitment, but if it's something that you're passionate about, especially like what my paper was on, uh, it really made it more worthwhile in the the long run. And I would highly recommend uh, taking full advantage of the opportunities that you can have through the thesis writing process. Thanks. And and Pat, what would you add on lessons learned? I think the biggest thing is that it's all about results. there's going to be a lot of ups and downs just through the writing process. You're going to change ideas. Uh, you're going to write paragraphs, maybe pages that end up getting scrapped later. But uh, just not to not get off track, not get discouraged. And um, just, you know, you want to be right doing your best work in March and April and uh, everything in between. Uh, nobody really sees. So it really just comes down to putting out the best final product that you can put together. It's good. A good testament to uh to some res- resilience and endurance and discipline in the, the thesis project and academic research. And, and Ryan, to add to that, what would you share with others who will follow you? Uh, I'd like to add to Chris's point. Uh, the thesis program, you get to build your own syllabus. And so you get complete ownership of the research, the research question, methodology, uh, what you really want to study. Uh, and secondly, just be bold. Um, you're going to start out with a, a giant broth of ideas. And throughout the entire year, you're just distilling it down, boiling it, and at the at the end in March and April, you're you're down to a nice glaze. And so that process of taking ideas, refining them, making them better, and that uh, resiliency in writing, um, you grow through it. And I, I feel much more prepared today as a thinker and a writer than I I was a year ago. We're uh, in the department just remarkably proud of the the work that these American politics firsties have done. And um, to the audience out there, for those um, who are about to start their thesis projects, those who are alums of the department, those who are, are fans of the department, um, just a privilege to be able to, to share their research with you and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation um, through the SOS Research Lab, through the podcast, through other um, venues, um, but really just a great opportunity here to capture the diversity of research, the, the uh, application of nice empirical methods, and then a lot of just really hard work by these three uh, three gentlemen. So um, Chris Weaver, Patch Slim, Ryan and Johnson, just want to congratulate you on, on graduating in a week and a half, commissioning shortly thereafter, completing your thesis project. And we're excited to see what you continue to contribute to um, these academic projects as well as to the Army. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank, thank you, sir. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Soch Podcast. A huge congratulations to Chris Weaver, Pat Schlim, and Ryan Johnson for a job well done, both under research as well as for graduating. All of us from Soch look forward to hearing about their future accomplishments. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast and be sure to leave a five-star review. Send any comments, questions, and critiques to our email address at sochresearchlab.com at westpoint.edu. 
That's S-O-S-H, Research Lab, at westpoint.edu. We love to hear from our listeners and are always looking for suggestions on future interviews. Special thanks to Major A.J. Glubzinski for hosting this episode and moderating the discussion with our cadets. As always, thanks to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. This is Major Yano, signing off. Till next time. <laughs>